Hey everybody and welcome. This is the beginning of a new series that I am calling The Final Four. And it's a four-week series. It's the four weeks before Easter. And I'm looking at perhaps the final four women that Jesus ministered to in the book of John before he went home to be with his father. And I'm really excited about the lessons we're going to learn from the life of each of these women and the actions that Jesus took with each of them. Our first story is found in John chapter 8. We're looking at verses 1 through 11, and it's about the woman caught in adultery. Now, to get into the context of the story, the religious leaders have made an attempt to arrest Jesus, but the guards refused to do so. And the Pharisees then are mocking all of those who believed in Jesus. And so Jesus is moving on. He's moving forward. It's where we pick up the story. Chapter 8, verse 1. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives. But early the next morning, he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and said, All right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, Neither do I. Go and sin no more. All right, let's take a look at this story about this woman who was caught in the act of adultery, dragged evidently naked before, by force in, into a public gathering place, humiliated by her sin and separated from anyone to love or protect her. She was judged and sentenced to death without trial by these self-righteous leaders. And then she was placed before Jesus, who is pure and holy, well, this is how the Apostle John describes the opening scene of one of the most significant passages of Scripture to show the theology here. We're going to dig down in here to see the role of each of those involved, uh, the accusers and Jesus and the woman. Well, the story kind of reads like a modern soap opera with all this immoral activity and in, in which these affluent and privileged people escape while the less fortunate are left to clean up the mess and they are punished. Now, remember here that this woman was caught in the act, but only this woman was brought to judgment. Where was the man? He wasn't brought forward. Keep that in mind. The Jewish leaders had already disregarded the law by arresting the woman without the man. Both, see, 
were supposed to be stoned, but they only brought her. They were laying a trap for Jesus. See, by posing that question, what would you do? They're saying, here's what Jesus, they're leaving him with these options. If Jesus said the woman should not be stoned, well, they would accuse him of violating the law of Moses. But if he urged them to execute her, they would report him to the Romans because Jews were not allowed to carry out their own executions. You see the traps they were laying, trying to be so smart in their decisions. They were laying traps for Jesus. Well, in our reading, John clearly identifies two different voices that are speaking into this situation. First of all, we have the voice of the critics and the voice of Christ. Oh, the voices of critics. How do they sound in our lives? Because they sound the same, sounded the same in the life of this woman. The voices of critics do these things. They condemn and criticize and destroy and mock and humiliate. Their method is to use any means available to exploit your weakness and your failures. See, and it's obvious that these Pharisees didn't accidentally catch a woman in the act of adultery. This was planned. It was a planned attack to destroy her life and then create a trap for the ministry of Jesus. Can you just think for a moment of the conversations that they must have had to set this up to arrange it? I mean, was the man involved, one of their own of some, some way, uh, somebody that they knew? What happened in order to set this up? Is that not just deplorable to think that anybody would be involved in that, especially these uh, in uh, the religious law? Well, Jesus exposes their motive. Let's, let's look at, at his voice in this. See, these accusers, these critics were not really concerned about her adultery. They weren't really concerned about protecting purity in the world or in their town. They wanted to trap Jesus. They, see, they wanted to create this situation where he would have to choose between a couple of things. First of all, would he choose the message of forgiveness, forgiving her, and obeying the old, and then the other option was obeying the Old Testament laws handed down from Moses? Those were his choices. What's he going to do with this woman? Stone her to death? Or is he going to forgive her? Well, just as this adulterous woman <clears throat> had been used uh, over her lifetime, I'm sure, for selfish reasons, these critics were also using her for their own agenda. That seems to get lost in here. This woman and whatever she had been through in her life, and there's no uh, justification for her immorality, but they were using her once again, just like all the other men who had used her. Now, they recognized, see, that Jesus was a threat to them and that uh, he was a threat to their power and their control. And they had built that power through exploiting people and for false teaching for their own personal gain. And this was just another measure they were using to ensure that they would still be in power and control and to trap Jesus. Would he forgive would he send her on her way or would he condemn her 
and use the law of Moses. Well, think about that. I want you to be thinking of a couple of questions. First of all, um, we often find ourselves as critics of others, don't we? Uh, We find ourselves as judging others. Think about the ways that that looks uh, in our world today. We judge people in so many ways, not just by race or gender, but by the type of car people drive and their accent, or are they athletic or not? And do they wear brand names of clothes? And what is the education level? And do they have musical ability? Oh, and what's their religious background? And the list just goes on and on. Just, just think about these. Um, do, does she have her daily quiet time or not? Does she go to R-rated movies? Do you attend a Christian school or one of those pagan public schools? Um, are you Republican or are you Democrat? Uh, do you, are you divorced? Um, are you one of those good-looking people, or did you get hit with the ugly stick a few times? <laughs> See, we all have these areas uh, where we judge people according to our personal standards. And we're seeing this play out in this story in Scripture. <clears throat> these were religious scholars who were doing this. It, they were the church people. <laughs> are we guilty of doing the same and condemning and criticizing others? without looking at ourselves. Well, let's look at this. What area of sin was the most offensive in this story? You know, we have a lot of things going on here. The, the most offensive sin is probably not the sin of adultery. It is probably more along the lines of the arrogance and the ignorance of the Pharisees because they were using the sin of another person for their own personal gain and they were doing no self-reflection. I've seen that so often that people condemn and point their finger at others and they are not putting their thoughts and their judgment through their own lens. They're not looking through their eyes at themselves. There's no self-reflection and uh, we have to be so careful about that. So those are uh, areas for us to consider in this story. The role of the critic and then pointing the finger at others for their sins without self-reflecting on our own. Let's see how Christ responds. The trap's been laid. The accusers now have gone to Jesus. They laid this trap. And what is his response in one of the most um, flummoxing (laughs) actions that we read about. He stoops down and he writes in the sand. It's so interesting. It's one of the biggest puzzles uh, of of Jesus' actions. What did he write in the sand? Don't we want to go into that moment and be there and see? Uh, There's an interesting theory that Jesus wrote the name of each accuser and that he wrote it from the oldest to the youngest. And they were so amazed at his supernatural knowledge that they they were stunned and silenced. And then, because you notice, they all departed from the oldest to the youngest. Isn't that interesting that he could have written each of their names? Or maybe Jesus wrote the sins of each religious leader in the sand. How about that? 
and that they, they were so convicted that they dropped their rocks and ran away. See, we have accusers and we have the religious leaders. We have the woman and we have Jesus. Maybe Jesus knelt in the sand because the woman was there and he wanted to support her in those terrible moments. We don't know what he wrote, but it was so powerful that it caused a response. They left, they left the scene. See, Jesus forced them to expose their own misunderstanding of, of him, who he was, and what he came to do, because they all walked away. The point is not that we all have to be sinless. The point is that righteousness, true righteousness, which means right living and justice should be founded on a a spirit of grace. And if it's not, then what you get is this heartless behavior and hypocrisy of the Pharisees who used accusers and that woman to their own advantage. You know, this is what the gospel story is about. It's about grace and mercy and justice. But all of this comes through Jesus Christ. I find it so interesting that this chapter in John opens with a group of men who are ready to stone this woman. And they leave and they're ready to stone Jesus. He frustrated them so much. When you know, when you expose hypocrisy in people, their inclination is to kill the people who did the exposing. And that's what happened here. See, Jesus on this scene, here's what he did. The self-righteous men now, who had exposed this adulterous woman, met up with this merciful Jesus who exposed the hypocrisy of Jewish leaders. See, that's how Jesus sets us right. That's how he changes the scenes that he comes upon and that he's engaged in and he's involved in when self-righteous people are caught, they get exposed and that's what Jesus does. He, he illuminates. He brings light into the darkness. That's what he did. See, the story reveals that we all face situations where different voices are competing for our attention. And in our own world and in the crowds that we're in, we often are seeking approval from people and affirmation from people that may not even care about us. And we see that in this scenario, those accusers were being used. Those Pharisees didn't care a thing about them. They didn't care a thing about that woman. They were being abused and used. And that uh, was how Jesus then exposed them for what they were doing. Um, Like the Pharisees, are we ever guilty of pointing out the failures of others while ignoring our own failures? That's what they were doing, pointing the finger at others while the other 
fingers were pointing back at themselves is, is the way we look at that. Our critics try to condemn us by pointing out our own failures. That's the voice of the critic. But the voice of Christ confronts our sin, but it's with love, and he shows us a better way to live. Note what Jesus did with this woman at the end. He tells her to stop sinning, to go and stop sinning and walk in the light. He does not excuse her sin. He doesn't give her a pass or excuses. He doesn't refer to the difficult childhood she had or maybe uh, that she had an abusive husband. She didn't say she's a, he didn't say she's a victim, and therefore she doesn't need to take responsibility for his sin. He doesn't even ask who the man was that she was committing adultery with. And so there could be some sense of fairness to bring both. He doesn't call what the woman did just a personal choice that was just different from what other people choose. No. Jesus identifies her action as sinful, and he forgives both of those. People can sin and be forgiven. But the Pharisees were wanting to see uh, Jesus to see that she sinned and she should be stoned. They didn't get it, did they? They didn't get the grace and mercy and justice of Jesus. See, we have two issues in this story that can keep us from having a faithful walk. And these open us up to pain and heartache and separation. And that would be the lack of forgiveness and then a critical spirit. Both of those are are such a major theme in this story. Those uh, accusers and the Pharisees were not about to extend grace and forgiveness to this woman. They were the voice of criticism. Those are warnings for us to avoid those areas because they're going to cause us pain. If we live in lack of forgiveness and if we hold on to a critical spirit, we will have heartache and we will end up with separation. Let's first of all look at forgiveness. C.S. Lewis once said, everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. (laughs) Do you ever find that is true? It's hard, isn't it? Uh, But the body of Christ and each one of us individually uh, are called to the hard work of forgiveness. It's probably, it can be, the most painful thing that we can engage in. But it's at the heart of the gospel. It's the example Christ set for us. He forgave us and died for us. Once upon a time in in the marriage, Ralph did something really stupid. His wife, Betty, chewed him out for it. He apologized, and they made up. However, from time to time, Betty mentioned what he had done. Honey, Ralph finally said one day, why do you keep bringing that up? I thought your policy was forgive and forget. Here's what she said. It is. I just don't want you to forget that I've forgiven and forgotten. (laughs) Is that human nature or what? We, We want to remind others of what they did to us and that we did forgive them. Oh, isn't that such backward thinking? It's hard to forget 
the things that have hurt, hurtful things that have happened to us, but can we start thinking about them differently? Thinking about them in this way. I know that that was a painful time, and thank you, Heavenly Father, that I'm not in that pain anymore. How about that for a switch of thinking? That's how we capture our thoughts and replace them. That's what the Bible says to do. You know, when we talk about forgiveness, we are talking about people and relationships. And that's often where we get broken in relationships. And that's where we will often find the need to forgive Relational breakdowns because of the need to forgive drain our energy. They complicate our lives. They take up space. They take up time in our lives that should be devoted to healthy, God-fearing, loving pursuits. We can't simplify our lives. We can't get our lives right until we tend to those broken relationships. Jesus understood that. He understood brokenness. Listen to one of the prayers, final prayers on the cross. Jesus prayed for the people who had unjustly accused and convicted him. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Those are 10 words. 10 words that can help us when we've been wronged. Let's say you think people know full well what they're doing when when they hurt you. Let's just say that. They say, but people know full well what they did. So that doesn't apply. Those 10 words don't apply in in this situation. But here, let me ask this. Do people ever really know what they've done? Do they ever really know what they've done to hurt us on our inside? Do they? Do they know the depth of pain? I don't think so. So Jesus' 10 words applies in every situation where we need to forgive. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I want us to look at the kinds of offenses that may come upon us where we tend to hold a grudge and perhaps not extend forgiveness. And we're going to be looking at three categories of these wounds that affect us. First of all, those minor wounds. This is just a slight that we get. It's an everyday injustice. It's a normal thing that happens in families and friendships. And it is something we have all experienced. You may have experienced it today. A sister, a brother may have walked by you and didn't acknowledge you. And you think that's a slight. That's a minor wound. And we ask ourselves, is it worth losing our mind or relationship over a slight? Or do we say, I can extend some grace here for the people who either don't know better or simply act foolishly? That's that category. Let's remember 1 Corinthians 13, verse 5. Love, it is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. That's what real love is. We don't get all out of joint when we have a minor wound. But we may still need to forgive. And then we move on. Category two, we're calling the hurtful wounds. Now, these include betrayals in a relationship. It might mean a broken promise, disappointments, 
people often disappoint us. Or it could mean abuse of some kind. These wounds are painful. They hurt. They hurt us deeply. And with these situations, we often become more focused on justice than mercy. May they get what is coming to them. (laughs) That's something we might say. We often want revenge. We want to say and do things that will show them. Have you ever said that? I'll show them. Maybe not out loud. (laughs) Or here's sometimes what happens. We get hurt by a broken promise or betrayal in a relationship, and we want to crawl into our shell and become passive. See, that's wrong action also. That's a reaction. We then live in avoidance. I just won't go around them. We reject them. We become bitter. Not, none of these responses, though, are going to bring peace or healing. <clears throat> Here, instead of that passive behavior or sometimes aggressive behavior, we want to do what Jesus did when he was mistreated. He forgave them and moved on. He said, it said in his final prayer, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. You know, Matthew 18, verse 5, gives us some instructions to help us to deal with these hurtful wounds. And the word go is so important. It says in the passage, if another believer sins against you, go privately and point out the offense. If the other person listens and confesses it, you have won that person back. Okay, and if they don't, what do you do? We still forgive. We still forgive. The, the reason to go to the person is to help them recognize that, that they have hurt you. And so maybe they will recognize it, and maybe they won't. But that doesn't change our responsibility. We're just to work it out the best we can, and we are to move forward in forgiveness you know, author Bill Hybels in his book, Simplify, puts it this way. Number one, go. Number two, go alone. Number three, go to reconcile the relationship. Number four, go now. And number five, let it go. See, that's what forgiveness is. Sometimes you can do everything right. You go, you go alone, you go to restore the relationship, and you go now, but the other person won't reconcile. Remember that beautiful scripture passage found in Romans chapter 12, verse 18. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. See, God, um, through the writer, gave us this important message, if it is possible. Often it's not possible (coughs) to live at peace with somebody. They're just not going to let it happen. But I have to do what the Bible says for me to do. Live at peace as far as I'm concerned. Do everything I am to do. And I am to confess my own sins and repent. And I am to forgive. Romans 12, 18 uh, is a reminder that when the relationship is restored, if that it happens, to give God the glory for it. All right, let's look at the next category. This is the final category of the three, and those are life 
life-changing wounds. Life-changing. These wounds are wrongdoings that shatter our lives. There is injustice to them. Sometimes they come out of nowhere. These are unthinkable tragedies. These are things that forever change our lives. Adultery, a tragic accident, murder, a family devastation, bankruptcy, and a huge betrayal. Those are some of the examples for life-changing wounds. Not everybody experiences this kind of offense in a, in a lifetime, but there are some of us who do. And so we still are responsible for forgiving. And so this is hard, isn't it? Because it changes a life, and sometimes this doesn't happen immediately. See, it, it's easier when we have had just one of those category three, three wounds, a minor wound, to do a quick forgiveness and move on and truly very often forget it. But when you get to a life-changing wound, you, you, you just can't forget these. They don't, they stay there with you. And it's up to us to go a, to a deeper step of forgiveness. And it involves a lot. And so here are some steps to, to cope with these wrongs. A healthy thing is, is in the first step to name it. Name what it is. Name it in a healthy way. Say it out loud. Share what has happened to you with a very trusted friend or a counselor or a pastor. Talk it out. It's so important. Number two, state what you have lost. Recognize it. Label it. What have you lost as a result of this wrong? It's important to identify the consequences this, of this wrong. What happened? As a result of the divorce, this is what happened. We now have to share time with children, you might say. As a result of the death of a loved one, I'm going to have to sell the home. As a, de uh, as a result of the bankruptcy, I'm going to be in a real financial struggle. Do you see? Name, first of all, what it is. State what you have lost. And then step three, and, and listen to the wording of this, be open to forgiveness. See, it's going to take time very often to grieve the sadness of a loss like this. But eventually, the prayer is that you're going to be, after you suffer through the loss and you go through the different stages of the grieve, grieving and you cycle in and out of those steps, that hopefully you will be ready to say yes to the possibility of forgiveness. It's this journey. <clears throat> but it's not by saying yes to someday forgiving those who've wronged you, you begin to clear the path. You begin to move forward to be open to that. And the instruction in Scripture still is to forgive, to forgive. Now, we're going to look at definition of forgiveness in just a minute because it, it, a part of that is not to condone behavior. It just means that you are going to let go of the, uh, the bonds that the person has on you, uh, the grip that the person has on you. 
And our hope is that we get to the point of praying a prayer something like this. Father, forgive them and help me to forgive them too. I release my right to revenge. I release my desire to control. Forgive them for they know not what they do. It's a beautiful prayer to be able to say when you've experienced one of those life-changing wounds. I've experienced that. I've experienced in several areas of my life. And these were not areas where immediately I came to the forgiveness. Uh, It took time. It took sorting through and processing and acknowledging and recognizing But I did get to that point where I could forgive those who had committed egregious acts. And it's hard, but it has kept me from being in bondage, in bondage of pain and agony with every thought of what has happened, had happened to me. Well, let's look at what it it means to forgive, you know, all wounds involve some kind of hurt. All three of those that I just described hurt, involve hurt and pain. And sometimes we just continue to live in that pain because we're not really willing to let go of it. We just hold on to the negative thoughts and the bitterness and the anger and, and those memories. And we just, we just relive them. And sometimes it sounds like this that we're constantly praying, but the prayer is not the prayer of forgiveness. It's an agonizing prayer of memory of the egregious act or the slight. It's just over and over, but it's not a letting go. See, sometimes we just don't want to let go because we haven't learned to truly forgive. Many emotional wounds any wounds that we are experiencing are connected in some way to unforgiveness. Emotional hurts are an open wound for unforgiveness. See, when we do not live in forgiveness, it can result in anger and bitterness and depression and anxiety and and, uh, the weaknesses in our character will come out. And these begin to hurt our body and soul and spirit. And that's what opens us up to evil attacks. We become targets for spiritual attacks. We become the people we disapprove of. We become the the ones we often criticize. And so we must forgive others and seek forgiveness in order for healing to occur. Let's remember Colossians 3, verse 13. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. This is what Scripture tells us. We have to bear with one another. We have to live with each other, so we have to bear each other's issues, don't we? And we are to forgive whatever grievance they've caused, uh, uh, come up against us with. And we're to forgive as the Lord forgave us. Let's never forget that's a part of it. So what is forgiveness? Forgiveness is a decision. See, it's not an emotion. Forgiveness is a decision to let go. It means that you no longer allow someone else to cause you bitterness or resentment or anger or pain. Here's what forgiveness is not. 
Forgiveness does not mean you'll not remember the hurt. Forgiveness does not excuse someone's behavior. Forgiveness does not mean you condone an action. Forgiveness does not mean that a relationship must even continue. Jesus modeled forgiveness when he prayed the prayer. Father, forgive them. And when he's saying them, he's talking about all those who were crucifying him and all the, and the criminals and on the one on his right and the one on his left. Father, forgive all of them. And did, then look at what they did. They cast lots to divide his garments. He forgave them, but they continued their bad behavior. That just may happen to us. But Jesus modeled that that's what forgiveness is. Let's look at the other egregious sin in the passage. Besides this idea of of lack of forgiveness and and living in that that world of justice in the way I see it needs to take place instead of the way God has created it. The other area is criticism and living with a critical spirit. So I ask you, do you pass judgment on others or find yourself with a negative disposition, finding fault with somebody else all the time? Or is it difficult for you to see the positive in a person or a situation because the negative is so glaring in your eye? Are are you compelled to give your critical point of view for the good of all mankind? Well, those are, if you said yes, those are indications of a critical spirit. And that's meant to hurt people. A critical spirit is this negative attitude of the heart that seeks to condemn and tear down and destroy with words. In contrast, there's constructive criticism, and that involves opinions that are meant to build up. A critical spirit creates these blind spots, blind spots in a person's heart and the person's mind. It causes them to believe that they are just being constructive. Think about that. See, these blind spots mean that we're ignoring truth. We're not seeing the big picture. We have blinders on, or we just have blind spots where we can't see the whole picture. A blind spot means we can't see or are not willing to see truth. Here's how it looks in our lives. There are Four types of of critical spirits that I'm going to give you. There's that gossiper. These are the tale bearers, the scandal mongers. Uh, They have privileged information about people that they want to reveal, and they love to to reveal uh, knowledge that they have about other people. They attempt to make themselves significant to the, the ones who are listening by appearing to be the source of all knowledge. That's the gossiper. Another two kind of of critical spirit is the slanderer. These people make false statements because they want to damage somebody's reputation. They don't care about the truth or correcting an error. They just want to inflict harm. Another realm of the critical spirit is judgmentalism. A judgmental person has an excessively critical point of view, and they tend to judge harshly. They lack empathy for others because they believe their viewpoint is the only right one. They believe they have the ability to know others' motives, and so they have this skill to point out others' mistakes, but they minimize their own. 
And then the fourth is the complainer. This person is habitually negative about others and circumstances of life. They are characterized, they're known for their discontentment and their ingratitude. They'll find something to complain about all the time. Those are the four, four primary ones. Well, how do we move beyond uh, the critical spirit? Well, first of all, we need to understand that it comes in the heart. This criticism, critical spirit, is within the heart. In Matthew, in Mark chapter 7, we learn that sins such as evil thoughts, coveting, deceit, envy, and slander proceed from the heart. And here's what Jesus said in response in Mark 7, verse 23. All these vile things come from within, and they are what defile you. Do we get it? Coveting and deceit and envy and slander are within us, and they defile us. Several factors that contribute to developing this critical spirit. Number one is jealousy. Those are the jealous are the ones that think they look better if they destroy others. Then several factors. Somebody feels threatened. Others make us feel anxious. So we criticize to self-protect. And then the last one is a sense of control. And these shame or manipulate somebody in order to gain control. Well, there are consequences to this. See, a critical spirit displeases God and causes him to judge that sin. Luke 6, verse 37 says, Do not judge, and you will not be judged. And do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. A critical spirit in action is the opposite of what we're supposed to do with the greatest commandment, is to love God and to love others as ourselves. Relationships get broken down when there's gossip and slander and judgment and complaining and jealousy and this desire to control. Relationships are broken when uh, people have a critical spirit toward others. And what happens is people begin to move away. They separate themselves from the ones that have a critical spirit. They lose trust. Frankly, a critical spirit makes us look ugly. I believe faces often reflect a critical spirit. Would you agree? How do we overcome? Overcoming a critical spirit can be difficult because it develops into a life-dominating sin. That's where we need to to do self-reflection. Because if we begin to live a life of unforgiveness and a life with a critical spirit, they begin to dominate our lives, and that is a life-dominating sin. It becomes a way of life. The answer for giving up any sinful behavior is the same. Number one, recognize it. Number two, renounce it. Number three, repent from it. And number four, resolve to walk in newness of life. Recognize it, renounce it, repent from it, and resolve to walk in newness of life. And then we put on love instead of hate. We build up instead of tearing down, and we give grace instead of grief. These cost nothing but humility. We know we have 
overcome a critical spirit, when we are characterized by a forgiving spirit, because we have been forgiven by God. See how connected both of those are? (coughs) Critical spirit and unforgiving spirit are danger zones in our spiritual life because they want to take us deep, deep into sin, and that is not what God would have us to do. So we want to overcome those by doing the four, recognizing, renouncing, repenting, and resolving to walk in newness of life. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you that you sent your Son, Jesus, to die on the cross just to forgive each of us from our sins, to take those sins away, those sins of unforgiveness and those sins of of critical spirit. You want to take those from us, and you will do so, and you will give us newness of life. Help us to self-reflect on any area of our lives where we're not doing that, and then help us to do the things that you have taught us to do, and that's to recognize our sin, to renounce it, to repent from it, and that means we are going to walk away from it, and then we're going to resolve to walk in newness of life. We want to do that today and from now forward. It is in the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.